Good morning, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. Today is Sunday, December 7, 2014. The share ID number for Friday, December 5th, is 7087. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Twofold Problem. The Big Book teaches us about our twofold problem. The first part of our addiction is that we are powerless over food. We get uncontrollable cravings when we eat certain foods. This is the allergy of the body. The second part is that we can't manage our lives in relation to our powerlessness over food. We get mental obsessions that send us back to those foods that we know will cause us the uncontrollable cravings. This is the obsession of the mind. We have what Dr. Silkworth called the double whammy, the two-fold problem. We can't stop once we've started, and we can't stop from starting again. With us today to speak on this topic is Joe, a recovered compulsive overeater from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Joe is dedicated to living the 12 steps of recovery and to carrying this message of recovery. Good morning, Joe, and welcome. Good morning, Leah, and good morning, everyone, and and thank you for having me on today. My name is Joe. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Minneapolis. I am going to talk about the twofold problem, but first I'm going to tell you why I'm in Overeaters Anonymous. I also want to say that my talk is for anyone who is hearing this who doesn't know there's a way out. I come from a very painful history of compulsive overeating. My high weight was 254 pounds. That's 120 pounds heavier than I am now. I'm 5'4 and a half, so 120 extra pounds was an enormous amount of extra weight that I was carrying around. And I always like to tell what my high weight was because the amount of excess weight tells you how very severe my food addiction was, how much overeating I was doing, which reflects the severity of my problem. My body mass index was 42. A body mass index of 25 is considered sort of a high end uh, for what is healthy. So I was 42, I'm, I'm sorry, I was 17 points above what was healthy for a body mass index. I woke up with food hangovers every day. I couldn't get out of bed easily. I couldn't run when I was in a hurry. I couldn't get in and out of my car easily. I couldn't climb stairs without being very out of breath. I worried about my health. I recall a few very vivid scenes of my overeating that I'd like to share with you. I remember one Saturday night going to the movie theater and I stopped off at a grocery store first to get candy, which they were selling in bulk, and I bought a whole pound of candy, went to the movie theater, bought the biggest bag of popcorn they had, and some other various treats, drinks, that kind of thing, and I ate everything, every morsel of it, and the next day, I was on the floor of the bathroom in my employer's facility, because I was working that day, writhing in agony because the food hangover was so bad. I felt like I was going to throw up, but I couldn't throw up. 
And the overwhelming physical nausea was so serious that I could hardly do my job that day. I remember another time I was sitting in front of the television one evening. This was in my 20s, and I had this huge bag of chips, and it was the biggest bag of chips that they had. My memory is that it was 72 ounces. I don't know if it was 72 ounces, but it was really huge. And I ate all of those chips in one sitting, and I had a food hangover for three days after that. I could only drink tea. One time I binged on a Saturday so badly that I stayed in bed on Sunday until 10 o'clock at night. I lost a whole day and a whole evening of active life because I was hungover from a food binge. I had a day-long binge one time. I was at work. Uh, They had a vending machine, and I binged on vending machine food all day. But because of the hundreds of food hangovers I had had before, I did not want to pay the consequences of a food hangover again. So I called Walgreens. Do you have any syrup of Ipecac? Yes, we do. Great. How late are you open? 10 p.m. I got off work, and yes, once again, I had been binging at work. I got that syrup of Ipecac, and I vomited my guts out. I still had a food hangover the next day, and that was not my last binge. There are many, many other memories I have of my eating. I remember being in my car, having stashes and messes on the floor because of all of the boxes and bags and cartons from all of my overeating. I got pulled over one time by a cop who thought I had been drinking. Actually, I had been eating, and I had been leaning over to get to the chips, one right after the other, and the swerving motion of the car made the cop think that I was intoxicated. I stopped off for uh, large packages of donuts every week after a bowling league that I had as part of uh, midweek bowling league with, uh, with my work buddies. I used to bake large batches of baked goods, and I would down the entire batch very shortly after I made them, whether that was cookies, pies, cakes, quiche, etc. Vending machines were very much a part of my overeating in college, at work, at the skating rink. I used to be a figure skater. There was a vending machine at the rink. Grocery stores, convenience stores, and delis. I was very knowledgeable about where these things were in whatever city I was living in and how late they were open and what could I get there. Movies were a major place of binging for me. I would go to a movie early enough to allow enough time to stand in line to get all the concessions, and I had to get, I I needed to get the popcorn and the candy together. One without the other was not very satisfying to me. I remember being at a movie one time, this was many years ago, where the film was long enough and it actually had an intermission. And I remember at the intermission, first of all, I had had my main concessions that I had eaten all the way through before the intermission, and then at intermission, I went back and got more concessions. I used to go on bike rides in the city where I used to live, and after the bike ride, I would stop off at Dairy Queen. I would get this particular thing at Dairy Queen, and then I'd stop off at a convenience store and get a bunch of you know, junk, and then I would go home and make a big dinner for myself and eat the big dinner and then eat all that junk as well on top of it. So I would have very large plates of food followed by servings of dessert. I remember going to a restaurant called Old Country Buffet, which is a buffet restaurant. You pay one price, and it's all you can eat. And for a compulsive overeater like me, wow, I mean, that was, you know, heaven in quotes. 
I remember piling my plate very high uh, with, you know, the main course and with a huge, gigantic salad with lots of dressing, etc. And then I would eat three desserts, and they were big, you know, because it was all you can eat. There was no limit to how much you could consume so long as you stayed in the restaurant. Uh, there was an all-you-can-eat plan in college, and I really took advantage of that, um, you know, multiple desserts. And sometimes I would, you know, take uh, the dry desserts like cookies and I would stuff them in my jacket and I would sneak out to, you know, continue eating after the meal was over. At one point, I had a designated binge night, which was Saturday night. I would get off work for the week on Saturday, and I would make a beeline for the grocery store, and I would load up on all the junk that I wanted to binge on. I would go home. I'd throw the junk on, you know, on the couch and in the refrigerator. I would take a nap because I had been up early to go to work that day. I would take a nap, and I would wake up at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I would proceed to eat from 4 in the afternoon until midnight, 1 o'clock, sitting in front of the television, and this was my Saturday night ritual. Now, I was in my early 20s at that time. And usually for people who are in their early 20s, that's a time of dating. It's a time of socializing. You know, it's a time of kind of really feeling your wings. And I was spending my Saturday nights in my early 20s at home alone binging. I would buy entire baguettes, uh, that, that long, uh, you know, French bread, and I would eat the whole thing with a stick of butter. I would buy whole boxes of crackers and plow through the whole box in, in very short order. Uh, I would hover around the food table at parties. I would pile up my plate very high at those food parties, um, and I would feel embarrassed when I would sit down with other party guests and they would see all my food, but that didn't stop me from the eating. And then while I would be eating the party food, I would be thinking, where can I go when the party's over? Because... Eating with others was never my main binge point. My main binging was always done alone. So no matter how much food I had eaten at that party, I would be thinking how much more food I could get when I left, either going home or stopping at a convenience store or a fast food restaurant or something like that. When I was a teenager, I did quite a lot of babysitting. And, you know, I really enjoyed the babysitting. I liked the children that I took care of. It felt good to be earning money as a young person. There was a sense of independence about that. But there would always come a point in the evening where I would feel impatient and I would want the kids to go to bed. And they never went to bed as quickly or efficiently as I wanted them to because I wanted them to be asleep so that I could eat. I could, you know, raid the, the cupboards in the refrigerator because invariably my babysitting customers always had the good junk food in their house. Um, now, I came from a home where my mother was very careful about nutrition, and I'm very grateful for that today. At the time, I didn't like it that we didn't have junk food around our house, but my babysitting clients did. So when the kids went to bed, I would go into the cupboard and I would go into the refrigerator and the pantry and look to see what was on the counter and what could I get my hands on. And there was always the tension of, how can I... How can I eat but without eating so much that they would detect that I had eaten it? So there was always that feeling of holding back because I didn't want to be found out and yet needing to eat the sugar and the junk and the, the crunch and the salt. I ate in bathroom stalls. 
in high school and college. Uh, my addiction had gotten to the point where I needed to stop off at the convenience store on my way to high school, get something sugary, go to school, go into a bathroom stall, rip open that item, and shove it in my mouth before my first class. And I continued that bathroom stall eating for many years because a food addict like me needs to eat in private. And in high school and college, I had no privacy. Um, I come from a large family. We had shared bedrooms. In college, we, you know, I'm living in a dorm with roommates. I mean, the, where am I going to get my alone time completely in secret and private and be able to eat? Now, of course, in a bathroom stall, you can't completely be totally private because other people are going to walk in. And that was always tense for me, too, because I'd be, I'd be just about to rip open that cellophane and someone would come into the bathroom. And even though they couldn't see me, it was still embarrassing for me to rip open the cellophane while someone else was in the bathroom. I didn't want them to know that someone was in the stall next to them eating. And that opening of the cellophane bag is just, un, it's just in my mind anyway, it was unmistakable. And so I would, I, would, I would stand there feeling so angry that there was someone else in the bathroom because they were interfering with my ability to open up that package and shove that junk down my throat. I remember buying whole packages of Oreo cookies. And if you know that package, there's a lot of cookies in there. But I could not concentrate on my studies until I had that whole thing consumed. And I remember having a cookie jar in my college dorm room. And I would, I would put the cookies in the cookie jar and close it up. And I would eat some like, okay, I'm going to study now. And I couldn't stop thinking about what was in that cookie jar uh, until they were all gone. So I would stop my studies, open up the cookie jar, and, and eat the whole thing. Um, they definitely called to me for sure. Um, I remember being on vacation with my family when I was in high school, and we were staying at a relative's home, and it was in the middle of the night, and there was this pizza in the refrigerator. And I remember um, sneaking to the refrigerator. Everyone else was asleep, and I opened it up, and I had to be so careful not to make any noise. I didn't want anyone waking up catching me eating that pizza. Um, I remember uh, also in high school waiting everyone out at night until everyone was in bed and then raiding the refrigerator for whatever I could get my hands on. I come from a large family, so I had a lot of waiting out to do for everyone to go to bed so that I could get my fix. I remember back when I was nine years old, I was in a group called Campfire Girls, and um, we had a party and they served pizza, and I ate eight pieces of pizza. And I was nine years old, and I was not full at the end of that. I remember uh, in my 30s, you know, at this point, my binging was nightly, and I remember having a piece of baked good in my hands in front of the television, and I looked at that piece of baked good, and I said to myself, what do I have if I don't have this? And the answer was nothing. I knew my whole world was contained in that piece of sugar and flour in my hand. But somehow that was what allowed me to get through life. Um, I would go for stretches eating favorite binge foods like ice cream and Cheetos, Pop-Tarts, etc. I would have this, you know, one identified item or two identified items and I'd go for a few weeks focusing on that one thing, although that wasn't the only, you know, food I was binging on. Uh, I remember 
having anxiety whenever there was a cake in the house, wherever I was living, because I wanted to get slivers of it. I wanted to get big chunks of it. But, of course, I had to do the little slivers so I wouldn't get found out. I remember one time I was an adult at this point going to a movie with friends, and one of them found herself without enough money to, um, to pay for the movie. And so I paid for her ticket, but then that didn't leave me any money for concessions. And I have to tell you, the anger that I felt and the deprivation I felt at not being able to have concessions, the whole movie, I felt that way. I can still, I can tell you what the movie was. That's how vivid. And this was like 25 years ago, and I can still remember that. I was walking out of my bank one time, and I noticed a candy dispenser, and I said to myself, I better remember this is here in case I'm ever in the neighborhood and I need a fix. I remember, again, back in college, eating in front of the TV, I ate six ice cream sandwiches in one sitting before dinner. Um, I volunteered for the Jerry Lewis Telethon one time, just doing kind of back-end telephone answering, and a local bakery had donated um, baked goods for the volunteers, and I ate 13 very large donuts in four hours. I felt guilty that my body had to digest all this junk at night rather than rest. I worried about my health. I worried about having a heart attack, cancer, diabetes. I worried about my teeth, you know, the impact of all the sugar I was eating. My face was stretched out from my obesity. I had a gurgling stomach during the day because my body was still recovering from the previous night's binge. I hated the mornings because that's when I felt the worst. That's when that food hangover was really hitting. I had to spend a lot of money on clothes to buy larger sizes that I required over time. I was demoralized. I felt like something was wrong with me, but I didn't know what. I was helpless in the face of the addiction. Now, because of the consequences I was paying, the unhappiness that my overeating was causing me, I did make several attempts at control. Uh, my first diet uh, was, no, I was nine years old. Um, I went on other diets later in grade school. I also went on diets at ages 14, 15, 16, 18, 20, 22, 24, 28, and 31 years old. Those are the diets I remember. I probably went on a bunch more. I went to paid weight loss programs. I went to Weight Watchers, weight loss clinic. I went to an outpatient eating disorders clinic. I tried controlled eating on my own, eating three meals a day, no binge foods in between, um, and no other food in between the meals. I tried getting insight into myself. I tried therapy. I would feel some brief hope that these methods would free me of my bondage. I would lose weight, sometimes down to a normal weight, but the day would come, sometimes gradually, sometimes all at once, that I was in the food again and I would balloon way up beyond my previous weight. I always ended up heavier than when I started. It was like my system was getting revenge for having been on the diet and it was going to get back at me by ballooning me up you know, more than I had been previously. At one point, my depression was so great and my despair so serious, I almost checked myself into a hospital. After this tremendous fight with the food and after I tried all my own methods, I came to you. Overeaters Anonymous was the last place I thought I'd end up and the first place that finally made sense to me. This brings me to the subject of my talk today, a twofold problem. During my years of weight loss attempts, I was pursuing a solution to what I thought was the problem. 
I thought the problem was excess weight. So naturally, I sought a solution that would get rid of the excess weight. Putting physical controls around the amount of food that went into my body seemed the common sense approach to the problem of too much weight. This self-control was always very painful, but I believe the pain was something I had to endure to achieve the goal, which was weight loss. The pain was physical and mental, but I didn't tell anyone about it because I figured it was the punishment I deserved for having overeaten so much. I endured the pain of controlled eating for as long as I could, but eventually I couldn't stand it anymore, and I would go back to the food, which gave me immediate pain relief, but brought back the other pain, the anguish of not being able to stop overeating. After being an Overeaters Anonymous a few years, I finally started learning about the exact nature of my problem. Unlike what I had believed for so many years, my problem was not weight gain. The weight gain was a symptom, albeit a serious one, but it was only a symptom of my problem. And I have since learned what my real problem is, and it's twofold, an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. I've learned that I have to understand both aspects of my problem and take the necessary action to address each of them in specific ways for me to have recovery. Trying to sidestep this twofold problem never worked for me. Trying to tackle one without the other also never worked for me. Before delving into each of these separately, I want to state what my problem is not. In addition to my problem not being weight gain, my problem is also not the way people treat me, the way I was raised, lack of self-care, the social culture of Overeaters Anonymous, the way people have sponsored me in OA, having the wrong job, being in the wrong relationship, not having the right kind of therapy, losing a job, the upheaval of moving, not having enough fun, not paying enough attention to myself, being socially stigmatized because of my size, not having enough money, not having a car, family holidays, food advertising, 24-hour convenience stores, my clothes feeling too tight, the diet industry, feeling unattractive, being self-critical, I could go on and on. My problem is not any of these things. My problem is that I have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. The allergy of the body. I have foods that when I eat them, turn me on, and I mean big time. They're extremely physically exciting. And once I have even one bite of these physically exciting foods, I cannot stop eating them. There is no such thing as a moderate amount for me. I remember sitting in my car at night in the parking lot of Super America, taking that first bite of a binge food and lurching back in the seat in a type of convulsion. I could feel my brain get turned on. It was like my insides were a giant building and all the lights were turned on at once. It was electric. That explosion of excitement propelled me to binge my brains out on all the binge foods I had purchased. I didn't stop eating until I had consumed every morsel. Over all my years of overeating, I only went for certain kinds of foods to binge on, and they had ingredients in common. Sugar, or its equivalent, like honey, carob, fruit juice, flour, saturated fat, and salt. 
these ingredients and combinations of them sent me into oblivion. And I chased that high using these foods. I also binged on volume, so any kind of food could be a candidate for binging. But given a choice, I went for those four main ingredients again and again, decade after decade. The term allergy of the body comes from Dr. William Silkworth, a medical doctor who practiced in the early part of the 20th century at Towns Hospital in New York City, a hospital that specialized in the treatment of alcoholism and drug abuse. Bill W., a co-founder of AA, had been admitted to this hospital for alcoholism and met Dr. Silkworth. When Bill and the other writers of the big book were writing the book, they asked Dr. Silkworth to contribute a letter outlining the allergy of the body to explain to the alcoholic reader this aspect of the condition. Dr. Silkworth's letter is contained in the chapter, The Doctor's Opinion, at the front of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, which we call the big book, the book that lays out the program of recovery from alcoholism which we as compulsive overeaters can use to recover from compulsive overeating. In the doctor's opinion, Dr. Silkworth writes, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they succumb to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. He goes on to say, I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I have had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date, favorable to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. And the doctor continues, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. I have an allergy of the body. I eat my binge foods essentially because I like the effect produced by them. I am restless, irritable, and discontented unless I can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few bites. After I have succumbed to the desire again, the phenomenon of craving develops. I pass through the well-known stages of a spree emerging remorseful. I was eating my binge foods to overcome a craving beyond my mental control. I cannot start eating my binge foods without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon sets me apart as a distinct entity. 
It has never been by any treatment I have ever tried permanently eradicated. The only relief I have available is entire abstinence. It took me a long time to get to the place where I understood and accepted my physical condition. But once I accepted it, I cannot tell you the relief it brought me. I no longer had to try to control the intake of my binge foods. Instead, I had to abstain from them. The fight was over. My body could be free of the physical craving. I didn't have to be compulsed to binge my brains out to satisfy the craving. The electric lights never had to be turned on again. I didn't have to suffer in that way anymore. What I did have to do was get input from sponsors and nutritionists about how to develop a sober eating plan. I follow a sober eating plan every day at every meal without exception. I have an allergy of the body 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. This allergy is a permanent condition and I will never be cured of it. As long as I live, if I want freedom from the phenomenon of craving, I will follow a sober food plan. My food plan has changed over time and I assume it will undergo other changes as I age, change my activity level, and so on. But the one thing that will not change is my food plan's sobriety. The sobriety of the food plan will protect me from ingesting any of my trigger foods or trigger amounts of food. I am a physical creature with a physical condition, and I treat this condition with entire abstinence. Dr. Silkworth did not say partial abstinence. Occasional abstinence, abstinence when you feel like it, abstinence only in private but not in public, abstinence except on holidays, abstinence except when traveling or on vacation, abstinence unless you're going through emotionally tough times, abstinence except when there's a death in the family, abstinence except when you're going through a life change, abstinence for a certain period of time and then you can let up. He said, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. This applies to me. My only relief is entire abstinence from my trigger foods. There is no occasion, circumstance, feeling, or any aspect of my reality that will get rid of or diminish my allergy of the body. That is why I practice entire abstinence every day at every meal without exception. I will never be cured of my allergy of the body, as I said, it is a permanent part of me, just like my brown eyes. I accept this fact today, and so I don't play games with my condition. I don't try to trick myself into thinking that my body can handle substances that it cannot handle. Now, I have a second problem, an obsession of the mind. If my allergy of the body were my only problem, I would not be an Overeaters Anonymous. I would simply take the information you've given me about the allergy of the body and I would apply it by practicing abstinence. But this does not work for me. Even when I abstain from my trigger foods, even if I'm not having a physical craving, I obsess about food. This obsession is so powerful that it forces me to go out and eat my trigger foods, which quiets the obsession very temporarily but then I feel bad for what I've done and I pay the consequences in guilt and remorse. But eventually the obsession returns and I have to medicate again, so of course I eat and the cycle continues. 
The big book calls this problem an obsession of the mind. Obsession because it's an intense fixation, and of the mind, meaning it originates in my mind. A full description of the obsession of the mind is found in the chapter More About Alcoholism in the big book. This chapter describes the mental condition of alcoholics, and when I apply this description to my eating, it fits. Here are many of the symptoms of the obsession of the mind that they talk about in the chapter more about alcoholism, and I'll substitute the words to apply it to my eating. My eating career has been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove I could eat like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my eating is my great obsession. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet I found it impossible to stop. The persistence of my illusion is astonishing. I've lost the ability to control my eating. I felt at times I was regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to my pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Over any considerable period, I got worse, never better. I have tried many imaginable remedies. In some instances, there was brief recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, I did try to prove myself an exception to the rule, therefore not a compulsive overeater. I believed that if I remained abstinent for a long stretch, I could therefore eat normally. I have tried hard enough and long enough to eat like other people. Commencing to try to eat normally after a period of abstinence, I was in a short time as bad as ever. In some circumstances, I have gone out to overeat, feeling myself justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But my justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. There was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. I am absolutely unable to stop on the basis of self-knowledge. I have no effective mental defense against the first bite. This chapter has a couple of stories to illuminate the nature of the obsession. One of those stories is of a man named Jim, an alcoholic who was sober for a time and then relapsed. Jim went on a sales call starting out in a sober state. He stopped at a roadside establishment to get some lunch. He ordered a sandwich and glass of milk, then another sandwich and another glass of milk. Then, as he tells it, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I was to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. I remember being in college and I'd been eating healthy meals, no trigger foods, I was down to a normal weight. I was walking through the basement of my dorm and walked by a vending machine when suddenly the thought occurred to me that I could get one candy bar and it wouldn't hurt me. Another time, same thing, eating healthy, down to a normal weight, suddenly the thought occurred to me that I could have ice cream for dessert at lunch and it wouldn't hurt me. At the grocery store, those baked goods are low-fat, they won't hurt me. At the movies, 
I'll get the popcorn without the butter, and I'll get a small box. That won't hurt me. I'll get these chips that are baked, not fried. That won't hurt me. I'll get a frozen treat made of rice rather than milk. That won't hurt me. I'll use honey rather than sugar. That won't hurt me. I'll dip my chips in yogurt rather than regular dip. That won't hurt me. I'll put margarine on the bread instead of butter. That won't hurt me. I'll get this baked good sweetened with fruit juice rather than sugar. That won't hurt me. It's low fat, so it won't hurt me. It's whole wheat, so it won't hurt me. With every one of these and many, 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 many more, had it actually not hurt me, I wouldn't have returned to binging. But these thoughts, far from being harmless, were actually very harmful because they were the mental obsession, chaining me down to making futile attempts at self-control. And this went on for almost 30 years with increasing severity over time. The chapter more about alcoholism proposes a radical solution to the problem of the mental obsession. It says we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. It also says if we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion, that someday we will be immune to alcohol. For me, immune to my trigger foods. The big book asks this question. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. I am unable to eat moderately, so how do I stop overeating altogether? How can I stop altogether if I have the mental obsession? The big book talks about this mental twist being the crux of the problem, meaning the heart of the problem. The mental obsession drives me into the food, and I have demonstrated again and again that trying to control the mental obsession does not work. In another story in the chapter, more about alcoholism, an alcoholic named Fred talks about the moment he realized what a hopeless alcoholic he was. He says, I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help me in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. Like Fred, I became hopelessly defeated, and it was a crushing blow. I had to concede to my innermost self that I was a compulsive overeater, that I will never be a normal eater. I don't have a normal eater's mind. I have the mind of a compulsive overeater. If self-control doesn't solve the problem, if self-knowledge doesn't solve the problem, if self-confidence doesn't solve the problem, if wishful thinking doesn't solve the problem, if arrogance doesn't solve the problem, if denial doesn't solve the problem, if blaming other people doesn't solve the problem, then what am I left with? I've exhausted all possible methods of solving the problem, and yet the problem is not solved. I am forced into considering that maybe the big book is right about me. Me, Joe, who comes from an intellectual background, did well in school, had a successful college career, a successful professional career, and has such a good mind in other ways, has an obsession of the mind with food. Me, Joe, 
has a mental obsession. I am not supposed to admit this according to all the inner laws I have, but I have had to admit this is true about me. I have the condition of the obsession of the mind. The last paragraph of More About Alcoholism says, The alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. So if I accept that I have an obsession of the mind, I am open to what they're talking about. Because my suffering has been so great, because my pain has been so deep, and because I accept that abstinence alone won't solve my problem, I am willing to go forward and learn how to experience recovery from the mental obsession by finding this higher power. And with this new conviction of who I am, I am launched into steps 2 through 12. These steps produced a psychic change, a change within my mind that has enabled me to experience freedom of the mental obsession. I had to get to the place where I was done trying to create my own solution to the problem. And I had to become willing to take drastic action by following steps 2 through 12. On page 59 and 60, the steps are listed. Step 2 came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. If I can't control my obsession of the mind, I've got to believe that there's some other power that can alleviate that for me. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. For me, this meant making a decision to follow the rest of the process, to follow the inventory steps, and to move forward. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I did that. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. I did that. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Yes, I was ready. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. That was part of my process as well, allowing this power greater than myself to come in and alleviate these problems for me, the the characteristics that, that created the mental obsession. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. I did that. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I did that. Step 10, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted that. I do that. Step 11, thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I do engage step 11 every day. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And I do that as well. When you're someone who is as bad off as I am, then you have an intrinsic motive to do all of those steps. Because I've shown through my history and my great suffering that I can't alleviate this problem. So I give myself over to steps 2 through 12, and the steps will alleviate my problem. And indeed, they have. Today, my life is very different. I am maintaining a 120-pound weight loss, and I'm at a healthy weight. I'm more effective. I'm less reactive. I'm more productive. I'm more creative. I have an incredible job that I love. 
In October, I went on a trip to London and had an amazing time. I can concentrate better. I live a more intentional life. I'm not the same person I was when I walked into these doors. This is all possible because I accepted my twofold problem and the twofold solution that goes along with it. In the chapter, there is a solution. It says this in the last paragraph. We hope no one will consider these self-revealing accounts in bad taste. Our hope is that many, many alcoholic men and women, desperately in need, will see these pages, and we believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too. I must have this thing. If you're like me and you identify with having an abnormal physical and mental response to food and you suffer because of your condition and you want freedom from that suffering, you can have it. I know this because I have freedom from it. It was imperative, however, that I accept my twofold condition, an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. I have found it necessary to use the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to address this twofold illness. The fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous gives me other people who have my same condition. It gives me newcomers to carry the message to, people to sponsor, practical guidance in developing and following a food plan, a structure within which to do service, and a close network of OA friends and allies. The program of recovery of Alcoholics Anonymous found in the big book gives me a method by which to recover, a set of steps to take, and principles to live by. For me, identifying and accepting my twofold condition means using all these resources that are available to me, both from Overeaters Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a very serious addiction. It was squeezing the life right out of me. I was desperate enough to come to you, and through you, I found the program of recovery. The twofold problem is a major diagnosis that, at first, I did not want to accept. I find the diagnosis today, however, beautiful because it answers the question why I do what I do. It answers that all-too-painful question, why do I compulsively overeat? I think in OA we believe that the answer to this question must be complicated because our behavior is so bizarre and our mental state is so off-kilter. Maybe it seems comforting to believe that if we have such a painful condition, having a complex diagnosis seems to make sense. I think I was like that. But I have found the most comfort in this simple diagnosis, an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. Because now I only have to deal with a twofold problem, not a fivefold problem or a sevenfold problem or a tenfold problem. The actions I take on a daily basis are serious but simple, and I find that an amazingly wonderful reality. You don't have to come up with a complicated explanation for your suffering. The fact that you suffer is enough. If you're on this line or listening to the recording and you're suffering from what you're doing with food, you have the right to know that there is a simple solution to this addiction. The solution is not always comfortable. It's not always convenient, but it does solve the problem one day at a time. The big book says we are not cured of alcoholism. What we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition.
I am not cured of compulsive overeating. I will never be cured, but I have recovered. And my recovery is based on my acceptance of my twofold problem and taking the necessary action to live the twofold solution every day. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. I'll pass. Thank you, Joe, for your very clear and potent message this morning. Thank you for your service. Joe's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording. And we'll now invite any questions you might have for Joe. And you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. This is Sally. Hi, Sally. Go ahead. Thank you, Leah. Good morning. Um, hi, Joe. This is Sally A. in South Jersey. I talked with you before, and it was such a pleasure to hear you this morning. It was very well done, very articulate, and very clear, and very helpful. Uh, my question to you this morning is, can you please describe for us today how you work your program on a daily basis? What does what does your life look like with, with regard to how you treat the nature and severity of your illness? Um, can you be specific with us as you have been in so many other ways this morning? Thank you, Joe. Yes, I can, Sally. I wake up in the morning. I feed my cats. I make my abstinent breakfast. I weigh and measure all of my food. Actually, I weigh all of my food. So my breakfast is entirely weighed. It's completely sober. Um, I often have the same thing for breakfast because I, you know, enjoy that. But today, for example, um, today is, what's the date today? It's December 7th. So today is December 7th. It's a new day. And my abstinent breakfast yesterday does not count for today. Today, Sunday, December 7th, I ate an abstinent breakfast. And I made sure that I set my alarm early enough today to wake up to eat that abstinent breakfast before I came on the line with you because I because of the schedule that I'm on, that's what I needed to do. I call a sponsor every day, and I commit my food to her. Uh, so I say what I'm going to eat for that day. And then I also do a reading and writing out of the AA literature, and then I read that to her. I find the exercise of the reading and writing um, is a way for me to practice step 11. It reminds me who and what I am. It exercises that positive recovery muscle in me. Um, I usually do a writing out of something out of the big book. Sometimes I'll do a writing out of um, other AA literature, such as the 12 and 12. Right now I'm doing some writings out of the book um, As Bill Sees It, which is like a daily reader. It's got quotations from Bill W., um, I sponsor others. Um, I have sponsees that call me every day, so I'm sponsoring on a daily basis. So that's step 12. I get to do that every day through sponsoring, and that's a great privilege and a great honor for me to give away what I've been given. Um, I am constantly engaging step 11 during the day. I am constantly act- asking myself, what is the recovery way of thinking about this? Um, if I hit a trouble spot, well, not if I hit a trouble spot, I do hit trouble spots. You know, I, I, I'll hit trouble spots at home, trouble spots at work, tr- you know, either tr- troublesome in my interactions with people or, or trouble in some inner reaction. I have a network of people in OA that I talk to on the phone on a regular basis. Actually, I make recovery phone calls every single day. So I'm on the phone with my recovery network and allies and newcomers on a daily basis. 
because I need to run my thinking through other people. That's part for me. That's part of step 11. I've shown myself over and over I can't handle my thinking on my own. So using that practical tool of the telephone is one way that I do that. Physically making a phone call is not enough. I need to disclose what's going on with me in that phone call. I also need to share what's going well for me in that phone call. That's part of my addiction is a default setting that's negative thinking. And so making a phone call helps me remember I need to share what's good about my day and about my life as well. I go to a meeting once a week uh, where I'm reminded who and what I am. And that's an opportunity to carry the message uh, to others as well. Uh, for the month of December, I'm the trusted servant at that meeting, which means I facilitate you know, how the meeting goes, and then I have a 10-minute opportunity um, to share like a condensed version of my story. And that's a great opportunity for me to, again, um, carry the message to, to those who still suffer and to help those who've even been around for a while to remember who and what they are. So I do have a daily routine. Today, for example, um, I've got a, I've got a a pretty full uh, day. Um, I'm not feeling as much energy as I normally do, been having some health challenges here and there. Um, and so I'm going to have to make, when I get off the phone from A Vision for You, I need to make my lunch because when I leave, I'm going to be gone during my lunch period. So I'm going to be weighing and measuring my lunch and taking it with me. Um, my food is like insulin for a diabetic. So if, you know, if I'm going to be gone for a while, I need to have my meals with me. If I have my meals with me, that gives me the, the basic bare minimum of what I need to have in order to have peace of mind. Abstinence is never my goal. Um, it's not my goal to stay abstinent. I'm abstinent so that I can experience what the actual goal is, which is a continuing spiritual awakening and carrying this message to others. So I hope that answers your question, Sally. Thank you, Sally. Who's next with a question for Joe? Hi, I'm Lisa. I have a question. Yes, go ahead. Hi, Joe. My name is Lisa M., and I'm calling from Massachusetts. And thank you very much for your talk. Um, um, I have a couple of months in the program, and I'm finding that I'm understanding it more and more and more and more, what's going on with me. And uh, so I appreciate this clear and clear talk about um, the obsession of the mind and, and the craving. My question is, um, I am, you know, working the steps, and um at step three and doing some reading, but I'm still, you know, every once in a while uh, having cravings. And so my question for you is, at what point did you stop having those cravings? You know, I've been asked that before, and I just don't have a clear answer because I didn't. My recovery experience has not been linear. It's not like it's not like I came to the rooms and on this day I did this, and then two weeks later I did that, and then a month later I did that. It's my recovery journey, honestly, Lisa, has been a lot more messy than that. I can't tell you when my craving stopped. What I can tell you is that once I realized, finally, 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 that I had an allergy of the body, and I started putting these. At, frankly, absolute boundaries around my food, I didn't have cravings after that. And so, I mean, it's been a few years now. Um, so when you say you have cravings, I think you need to identify, is that a physical craving or is it 
you're just thinking about food. So you need to go through your food plan and say, you know, if, it's, if you're having a physical craving, you need to examine your food plan and see where you might be ingesting, even perhaps accidentally or, you know, not on purpose, where you may be ingesting any of your trigger foods, even in, you know, you might be having, I'll just make this up, but let's say you're having, you know, canned vegetables. Well, if you're not careful, so there are canned vegetables that, that has added sugar. Deli meat has sugar. Soup has sugar. Crackers have sugar. Bread has sugar. I mean, you've got to really become, I shouldn't say you have to, I have had to um, be really um, a good label reader uh, in the grocery store. So my suggestion to you, Lisa, would be to discuss with your sponsor your food plan. First of all, to discuss your food plan. Go over it with a fine-tooth comb. If you're used to eating something that's packaged, look at the ingredient label and see what's in there. It may have some of your, uh, you know, your trigger ingredients, and that might be causing the problem. If you go over your food plan with your sponsor with a fine-tooth comb and you're not ingesting any of your trigger foods, then you're not having a craving. What you're having is a mental obsession. And then you need to get busy with that step work and perhaps step it up. So that would be my suggestion to you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa, for the question. Who's next? Hi, this is Kathy in Boston. Sarah W. Kathy and then Sarah W. Go ahead, Kathy K. Thank you for your service, Leah, and thank you, Joe. I really got a lot out of your sharing today, and um, you did such a great job of articulating both the problem and the solution. Um, I have a question for you about Step 12. Um, I'm living in 10, 11, and 12 today, and so often um, as I work with sponsees, um, uh, they have difficulty sometimes in the middle of Step 4, sometimes even later, and they end up... um, picking up food again. And I'm just wondering if you have an approach to that that you think uh, works best in terms of helping someone uh, revisit the early steps or whatever you do to help them get back uh, and really, really accept that they're compulsive overeaters. Thank you. Well, you know, there can be a variety of things that that go on. But again, as I had said to Lisa, You know, if somebody goes back into the food, we first of all have to look at their food plan. There may be a food that they're eating that's a problem for them. Maybe they didn't realize it was a problem for them. Um, You know, so you can ask them some very detailed questions. I ask people very detailed questions about their food. Um, Sometimes it's a matter of, uh, you know, maybe they're adding something to an abstinent food and that's causing, you know, a craving. Um, maybe they're, you know, maybe they're um, salting something. Maybe something that without salt is not a problem, uh, but maybe with salt it's a problem. So you gotta, uh, you gotta look at their food plan. I, I often find that people, and I was like this too, um, they believe that they're abstinent, but actually there's something going on with the food plan that's a problem. So if that is not addressed, they are going to keep going back to the food. So that's the first thing that has to be addressed. If um, if the food is not the issue, so if they're, if they're truly sober with the food and they go back to the food, then that's the mental obsession. And then you need to take a look at 
what is it, then it's really a step one issue. Because if someone is not having the craving, they're not ingesting their binge foods, but they've got the mental obsession that, that, that persists and then they go back to the food, they're at step one. Then I would say, you know, take them through, have them read more about alcoholism in the big book, and really have them answer the question, do you really believe you're powerless? Because you've got to, you have to admit that you are powerless over the condition before any of the other steps are going to have any meaning whatsoever. And I find, this was true for me in my own experience, and I also find this in sponsoring, that that is a step that can be, um, people can maybe try to take a shortcut around it. Because let's face it, it's kind of painful to admit our powerlessness. We're not supposed to admit that we're powerless over something. We're supposed to try to find the power in a situation. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a devastating blow to the ego to admit that we can't control something. So I would suggest that you go back with that. You know, first make sure their food plan is clean. And then, you know, take some time going through more about alcoholism and slow it down. Just read a couple of paragraphs a day, perhaps have her write on, you know, what is her understanding of her powerlessness? Um, If she can get to the point of admitting her powerlessness over her condition, then she has a shot at recovery. If she cannot get to that point, if she's resisting admitting powerlessness, she might not be ready for the program yet. I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kathy Kay. Sarah W., Sarah W., question related to twofold problem. Go ahead. This is Beverly. Beverly, we're taking Sarah first, and then we'll get to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Leah, for your service. This is Sarah W. Grateful Recovery Compulsive Reader. Thank you very much, Joe. I really appreciate hearing you share. Um, I guess the thought I had, and I think you kind of answered it, but maybe you could expand on it. You know, we're not experts. Um, you know, is one thing. You know, we're experts in the idea that we know how to compulsively overeat. Um, and we are all on, the, on this path to help others uh, deal with their affliction and find the uh, power greater than themselves. But I guess the thought I have is that, for me, my, my abstinence has changed over time. You know, I've had to relook at it. Um, I was hoping that maybe you could address that a little bit, because I think sometimes people really think that, you know, this is what it is. You know, these people are, have the allergy to the flour and to the sugar, some of us are much more oriented to, uh, um, you know, volume or texture. You know, I think that's a really big part of our illness that we don't talk about a lot, but especially texture and, and, and um, different behaviors like standing and eating and that kind of thing. But um, I, I was wondering if you would address that. And also uh, the, the idea of honesty, because, you know, that's the, that's the underlying um, principle behind the first step. And, you know, some people really struggle with honesty. You did kind of touch on it a little bit. Maybe you could uh, work through that a little bit more. How can we as sponsors encourage that a little bit more and um, provide an opportunity for people to find that place where they can be honest and trust, you know? And and I'll pass. Thank you. Okay. Um, Well, those are great questions. With regards to the food, I mean, I've learned over time to ask better questions. Um, For me as a sponsor, to ask better questions of my sponsees around their food. And it's always a matter of what is the, you know, food issue 
for the sponsee. What are her trigger foods? What are her trigger behaviors? Um, so when I'm first working with someone, you know, she, we're trying to, you know, help her develop a sober food plan. Um, you know, I will ask her, you know, if she's got something on her food plan that might be a question, I will say, did you ever binge on that? You know, did you ever binge on, I'll just make something, you know, did you ever binge on peanuts? Um, and she might say, well, you know, I would eat them if there was nothing else in the house. That tells me something as a sponsor. She's not going for those as her first thing. It's kind of this, if there's nothing, you know, I'll binge on it if there's nothing else left. That's really not a primary, it may not be, probably not a trigger food, um, if that's her answer. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll ask, uh, you know, she she might say, uh, I want to have, um, you know, a particular kind of starch, let's say, with butter on it. And I'll say, did you ever binge with bread and butter? You know, I'll go through a series of questions. Did you ever binge with bread and butter? Did you ever binge with bread and jam? Did you ever binge with bread and peanut butter? And then I'll say, did you ever binge on, on bread by itself? Because the particular issue has to be uh, teased out because the problem for her might not be the bread. It might be the butter, the peanut butter, the jam. So the bread, this is often the case with compulsive overeaters, is what we use starches as delivery devices for fat and sugar. Once you take the fat and sugar off, often the starch is not a problem. So I have sponsees, you know, who've eaten, they can eat bread as long as it doesn't have sugar too high up on the label. Now, I don't eat bread. I, my body cannot handle any kind of flour, but I've had many sponsees who can eat bread. It's not a problem for them. Um, so, um, but, I, but I also will say that um, sometimes a sponsee will eat a food that the name of it, the mention of it, will be a trigger for me as the sponsor. So in that case, I will say, you know, that's not a problem for you, but will you please call it something else when you're committing it to me? Because just hearing the word is a trigger for me. So I've learned to discern those. So my job as a sponsor is to help the sponsee understand what the problem foods are for her. Because her problem foods might be different than mine. So that's an answer to your first question. Um, and oh, and well, and also I wanted to add that if if she's having um, trouble with her food plan, if her weight goes up or her weight goes down, or she's too hungry, she's not hungry enough, or whatever, then I, you know, I have her go to a nutritionist because I'm not a nutritionist. It is not my job to determine what kind of nutrition she needs in a day. That's her nutritionist or her doctor's job. But I will you know, suggest that she go do that and then she can come back from that consultation and let me know what that nutritionist said. So together we're all helping her have this sober food plan. So that's an answer to the food question. The honesty question, also a great question. I've also learned over time to be a lot more patient and to create a safe space for that sponsee over the phone. I didn't used to be like that. I used to be rather harsh. Um, and dictatorial and retaliatory as a sponsor. Thank goodness, thank goodness, um, I learned um, that that is not, that's not really sponsoring. Uh, pushing somebody around is not sponsoring, in my view. So I've learned over time to develop a space where the sponsee can take, she feels free to take the risk of being honest. 
because it is a risk for those of us who are addicts to start practicing uh, coming out of this isolation with our thinking. We keep a lot of secrets, and we are very dishonest. And so when we come into the program, we need environments and atmospheres where we can start putting our toe in the water and start telling somebody things that we've never told anybody else. And in order for that to happen, the sponsee has to trust me. She has to trust me just enough to disclose these things. So there's a couple of things that are important there. One is anonymity. So we guard our, our sponsee's anonymity. We don't say who our sponsees are. We don't say, you know, we don't disclose personally identifying details. And then on the phone, you know, we become good listeners. I've, I've practiced becoming a better listener so that the sponsee can talk without being interrupted, without being sh- uh, shut down in some way. That discourages honesty because then she's learning that every time she discloses something, I'm going to jump down her throat. Well, who's going to want to be honest in an atmosphere like that? So, you know, I was just rereading a section of... Um, of uh, working with others in the big book, and it says if your talk has been, um, I don't remember the, I don't remember the exact verb. But it was something like, you know, and full of compassion. If your talk has been quiet, sane. I think it's if your talk has been quiet, sane, and full of human understanding, you have perhaps made a friend. Now, it's not my job to befriend my sponsees, but they're saying in the big book this is the approach that we need to take: to be quiet, sane and full of human understanding. The sponsee, I think, wants to be honest. We're in this program to get help, and we're, I think we're hungering to tell somebody our secrets. So I think that we as sponsors owe it to our sponsees to create that environment of being quiet, sane, and full of human understanding so the sponsee can do what she already wants to do, which is to be honest with us. Thank you, Sarah, for the question. Joe, I just want to make sure, what time would you like to be off the line this morning? No, I've got about another 10 minutes. Okay, very good. Beverly, your your turn. Hello, my name is Beverly R., and my my question is, I think it is correct to say that, um, I think in a way you have already answered the question, but um, in a way it is correct to say, I mean, I'm sorry. I think you have already answered the question in a way, and I'd like to say that I think it's correct to say that um, over-compulsive overeating is a disease of denial. And um, it's something that I struggle with because as you say, as you say, and as in my situation, there's a lot of shame and guilt associated with my disease. And and also there's this feeling um, of being ostracized by society because I have this disease. So my natural, because of all these things and many others, my natural inclination is to deny that I have the disease and to be outraged at the suggestion that I could have this disease. So how do I overcome this? desire to deny my disease on a daily basis? How do I overcome it on a daily basis? That's my question. Okay. I don't think you can overcome it. I don't think it's our job as addicts to overcome the denial. That's not our job. 
That's why we have to come to believe that a power greater than ourselves will restore us to sanity. And being restored to sanity means we are no longer in denial. So if you're trying to overcome it, you're trying to exert self-control, and that does not work for us addicts. Um, you know, they say in the big book, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are willing to take certain steps. So I always like to ask the question, do you want what we have? You know, what is it that you want? And are you willing to go to any length to get it? And going to any length to get it includes working with a sponsor who's recovered. We can't do this alone. So if you have a desire to come out of your suffering, if you have a desire to have a different experience than what you're having now, you have to take a leap of faith and call someone who has what you want and say, will you be my sponsor? It's a leap. You know, there's a, um, and you don't know what's going to happen, and it's a risk. Um, there's a, I love the, this is my, one of my favorite quotes in, in um, the OA, uh, there's a for, the For Today uh, daily reader that OA puts out. There's a quote in there, and I don't remember what page it's on, but the quote is from Henry Miller, and it's, All growth is a leap in the dark, a spontaneous, unpremeditated act without benefit of experience. So if your suffering is great enough, if your pain is great enough, and then you see someone in front of you who has what you want, who's got a life preserver, then you grab onto it. And then you are willing to go through the discomfort of taking the risk without knowing what's going to happen next. Does that help in any way? And that's my higher power. Thank you, Beverly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Who's next with a question for Joe this morning on the twofold problem? Hi, this is Melanie. Hi, Melanie. Go ahead. Hi. Hi, Joe. This is Melanie, recovered compulsive overeater calling in from California today, and I uh, wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned something about weighing and measuring your food, and I do too. I was wondering, maybe in light of the season, if there's any flexibility in your in your food that you do outside of the weighing and measuring. Uh, for example, there's lots of extra party opportunities, food opportunities, guests coming over, bringing impromptu kinds of foods, and there might be something that's not necessarily your trigger food that they've combined into a lovely a lovely dish to bring to offer um is there any flexibility in in your plan or as a as an addict or in terms of this twofold disease to be able to add that in just spontaneously for yourself thank you great question melanie um i don't do spontaneous eating because that is the problem for me so the sobriety of my food plan is that my food is always planned in advance. Um, If something happens in the spur of the moment that I didn't anticipate, you know, for example, if I'm at a party and I have my food with me, but I forgot my fruit serving, you know, then I will, and then I have to make a plan for how I'm going to take care of that. So I would call my sponsor. If she's not available, I would call another sponsor and say, I forgot my food at home. I'm at a party. You know, what should I do? And she'll walk me through how to um, take care of that in a sober way. I would never just spontaneously have something 
um, that I had not committed ahead of time, that is not a sober food for me, that is not weighed out ahead of time. Um, I can't afford to do that. I'm a very low-bottom food addict. Um, so my food plan is always sober. During the holidays, you know, sometimes uh, you know, there's gatherings and there's special meals. What I will do is I will um, spend a little more money sometimes purchasing an abstinent food that I normally don't have just because of the cost, but it is an abstinent food. For example, I like eating roasted red pepper out of a jar. It's a totally sober food for me. I normally don't buy it because it's just on the high end. I just don't want to spend that kind of money um, on it normally. But if there's a special occasion, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and buy that. You know, same thing with artichoke hearts out of a can. I make sure they're packed in water, not in oil. And that's another kind of quote-unquote special food, but it's an abstinent food. I just normally don't buy it because of the cost. So that would be the flexibility, if you will, um, that I have in my plan of eating. Thank you, Melanie, for the question. And we have time for one more quick question. Star one to unmute. Uh, hi, can you hear me? Your name, please. Uh, this is Maria in Alabama. Maria. Go ahead with a question, please. Um, I am in nowhere near abstinence, and but I'm familiar with the 12-step program. And my question is, how do I identify my trigger foods? Because from what I hear on a vision from you, uh, sometimes you may eat something in the morning and not really trigger a bench till later in the day or the next day. So how do I know that was it? Like if I put honey in my tea and, you know, I eat over it the next day. I, I'm not a very obvious binger, but obviously I have a problem with food. So, mm. And thank you so much for, for sharing your story. I really enjoyed it. Yes, you're welcome, Maria, and good question. I would suggest that you review your food history and look at what foods did you go for over and over and over again and then look at the ingredients of those foods. And that's how to identify your trigger foods. You know, are you going for baked goods all the time? Are you going for fatty foods all the time? Are you going for crunchy, salty foods all the time? Are there certain combinations that you went for over and over and over again? Um, did you, you know, when you ate a potato, did you have to have butter and sour cream on top of it? Um, did you have to have like, like really fatty cheeses on things? Um, do you like eating the skin off of chicken? I mean, those are all fats. Um, you know, that salt, there's a lot of, uh, you know, hidden salt in a lot of the foods that we overeat on. So take an inventory of the foods that, that you were eating, Maria, and I mean, even write them, if you're having trouble identifying them, write them down. And don't worry, about, don't worry about finding the ingredients first. Just first write what the food was. Was it Cheetos? Was it Oreos? Was it ice cream? Was it flavored yogurt? You know, was it bread and butter? Was it, you know, was it French fries? Was it, um, you know, bre breaded hamburger? Um, 
Was it, you know, popcorn with salt and butter? I mean, just, just write it down. What is it that I ate over and over and over and over and over and over and over again? Now you've got a list. Now look at the list a second time and say, what are the ingredients inside these foods? Because foods are made up of ingredients. They're made up of components. You have to break down the components to identify what your problem ingredients are. I broke mine down. You know, my components are sugar, flour, salt, and fat. Saturated, the saturated fat. Those are my ingredients. And then volume of any kind. So I was able to identify those because I looked at my food history. And I, you know, and I thought about, like, when I was able, when I finally realized I could have raw nuts on my food plan, it was because I thought about my history. What did I ever do with raw nuts in my overeating? Like, I remember binging on them, but it was like, wow, they were just not satisfying as a binge food, and I only would eat them if everything else were exhausted. I just never pursued raw nuts. So I talked about it with my sponsor. You know, I can start putting raw nuts in my food plan. Um, so that would be my answer, Maria. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maria, and everyone who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Joe, for your powerful, clear message this morning. We appreciate your service. And I will close with the way we always close our meetings here on A Vision for You from page 164. Maria? Yes. I just want to make sure that um, that uh, my phone number is given while the recording is going, so if there's anyone who's listening to the recording who wants to call me can do so. Okay, so let's do that. Joe can be reached at 612-377-4502. That's 612-377-4502. That is Central Time, one hour before Eastern. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Joe. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.